Thanks, Kelly. Hi, I'm Janet, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to be with you all here on this nice September night. Um, so I'm Janet B. My notes say from New Jersey. I have to change that from North Carolina. I'm a recovered compulsive eater, and I want to talk about God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob. So the big book tells us we're all allowed to have our own concept of God. Here's mine. God created the world in six days, took a day off to rest, and instead of spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix, he decided he'd spend his time launching search and rescue programs for addicts. So here's the story of one of God's most successful search and rescue missions, the story of Dr. Bob, one of the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the other being Bill Wilson. So Dr. Bob's story comes right after the chapter of Vision for You in the big book. So if you have your big book, we're on page 171. Um, but before we talk about how God rescued Dr. Bob, let's get some background on Bob. He starts out by saying, I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. And he goes on to say everything was fine. His parents were fine. The town was fine. They were moral, good. He had a good childhood. So his parents were great, but he became an addict anyway. And I think this is really important because a lot of us say, well, the reason I'm a compulsive eater is because... And the, we, the because is we usually blame someone. And if we're honest, it's usually our parents. But in the story of freedom from bondage, which is on page 544, the author says she didn't become an alcoholic because of what happened to her in her childhood. But she said, I'm a result of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. So again, it's always up to us. Are we going to forgive? Or are we going to blame? Because ultimately, the fact that I'm a compulsive eater has nothing to do with how I was raised. It has to do with the way I live my life. And Dr. Bob makes that clear. On page 172, he says, I was the only child which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. Now, of course, if we are only children or we have only one child, we shouldn't go about saying, oh my gosh, that's setting the stage for alcoholism. I, I better go have another you know, child quick, honey, come here. No, we don't do that. Because Dr. Bob isn't saying it's the only child part. He says it's the selfishness part. And later on the page, he really digs in and defines it. He says, my whole life, seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. Well, that's interesting. We always talk about this illness being more progressive, but we usually think of it in terms of food, right? Our binge is getting worse, but he's talking about even before the binging, his selfishness and self-centeredness got worse and worse. Well, that makes sense, right? Page 62 of our big book says, selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. So Dr. Bob was right on the money by saying selfishness and self-centeredness is the root. Um, in my big book, I actually drew a little picture of a tree and I drew roots under the tree and I wrote the words selfish and self-centered by the roots. 
But the thing about tree roots is you don't see them. They're underground. So we can be really good at hiding our selfishness and self-centeredness. But on a tree, you do see the fruit. So I drew three little circles like apples. And in one, I wrote an R for resentment. And one, I wrote F for fear. And in the last one, I wrote H for harms to others. Those are the fruits of this illness, resentments, fears, and harms. So there's Dr. Bob saying he's selfish and self-centered. And you can even see it by the example he gave. He said, my parents made me go to church and basically I'll show them. I decided when I was old enough, I wouldn't go to church. Um, so he turns his back on God, but he makes an exception. He says, except when circumstances made it seem unwise to absent myself. So basically he was using church, right? Like, oh, I'll go to church if so-and-so will be mad at me for not showing up or if it'll look good for me and help me get a good job. If my boss sees me going to church, he used God and church in a self-centered, self-serving way. So it made me think something we should ask ourselves. Do we use our religion? Do we use God? Do we ignore God except when we want to treat him like a genie in the bottle? Like, God, things aren't working out too well. So please come out of your bottle, make everything good again. And if you do, thanks, go back in the bottle and I'll call you when I need you. And if you don't, well, then I'll just ignore you even more. Well, that never worked for me and it didn't work for Dr. Bob. So but Dr. Bob continues talking about the progression of his selfishness. And he says, throughout college and medical school, he was drinking. And something I noticed reading this story, he says on page 174, it says his father, when he was in college, made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get him straightened out, but it had little effect. So Dr. Bob had a dad who really loved him and who may have died, we don't know, who died before Dr. Bob even got sober, but he loved him and Dr. Bob felt it. He mentioned his dad's attempt to help him twice in his story. So that made me think of times we might do something for people out of love and never see the results, right? Imagine if Dr. Bob's dad had said, I'm not gonna try and help my son again. I'm not seeing any results here. Well, none of us would be here, but he still tried. And what that teaches me is that I should love even when it's difficult and even when I don't see fruit. So Bob becomes Dr. Bob, right? On the bottom of page 174, every mother's dream, he's an MD. Um, but on the bottom of that page, it says, by this time, he says, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Okay, this is a guy who wanted to get better. I mean, imagine six times he had himself locked up and he was a doctor, so the people knew him, but he said, I need to be locked up because I just can't stop. So he had a desire to stop, but desire alone doesn't do it, right? On page 24, it says, at the certain point in the drinking of every abnormal drinker, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. So Dr. Bob had a desperate desire to stop drinking, but he didn't have the power. When the obsession struck, he did what any addict does. 
he, he found a way. He got his friends to smuggle alcohol into the hospital or he'd steal the alcohol in the hospital. So he got worse. He's actually in rehab, actually getting worse. And by the way, don't think that's so unusual. That was me my first seven years in OA. I went to meetings. I had about 50 different sponsors. I did the work they told me to, but I got progressively worse. I went from binging and purging twice a week to throwing up at my worst six times a day and needing major surgery to repair the valve in my esophagus. Um, it was major. I couldn't go back to work for about a month after. That's the damage I did. Um, like Dr. Bob, I had the desire and I did a bunch of work, but I was like someone with diabetes who just goes to Diabetes Anonymous without ever being taught how to inject insulin. I got worse. And so did Dr. Bob. I mean, if we want the alcohol, the food, we're going to get it. So I guess it's better to say if the illness demands that we have it, we're going to find a way to get it. We have no say in it. I heard a woman talk how she, like Dr. Bob, had locked herself in a rehab for compulsive eating, and then she sent herself a candy gram. You know, unless we are safe and protected by God, we have no choice when it comes to food. So here's Dr. Bob not getting better. And again, his dad tries to help him. His dad doesn't come himself. He sends a doctor from his hometown. And Bob's okay for a bit. But then prohibition starts, the company, the country's going dry. So he says, I may as well get drunk now because in a month when prohibition starts, that means it was illegal to drink anywhere in the country. He said, I'll just wait. But of course there were bootleggers, people who are able to get alcohol anyway. But it kind of reminds me of what I had been guilty of when I was binging. And that's the, I'll start tomorrow syndrome. Right. So here's Dr. Bob. I'll start when prohibition starts or me. I'll start tomorrow or Monday or the first day of the month or for sure, January 1st. I'll start tomorrow. And what that really is, is me thinking my cure is my pillow. And that if I put my head on it for seven hours, I'm suddenly going to be cured. Right. You know, I think they have commercials for something called a miracle pillow. Well, that would be a real miracle pillow, right? We put our head on it for seven hours, cured. But it never worked for Dr. Bob and it didn't work for me. I have a plain old pillow. Um, so there Bob is, he goes drinking like this, passing out at home, going to work just so he could earn enough money to keep drinking. Imagine that, he, he worked just so he could earn enough money to drink. And lest we think this is limited to alcoholics only, it is not. I once worked with a young woman who became a stripper to support her food habit. This illness takes us to some, some dark, hard places. So Bob kept this up for 17 years. He says, 17 years, and during this time, I used to promise my wife, my friends, my children that I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. Again, he was sincere. He had the desire, but desire doesn't do it. Imagine someone who has cancer going to their wife, their friends, their children, and saying, I promise you, I will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. 
Well, that would be heartbreaking, right? Because we would know that person had zero power to make their cancer cells stop multiplying. And Dr. Bob had zero power to make himself stop drinking. And I had zero power to make myself stop binging. So he went on like this. And then on page 178, he talks about a group of people he found. And he says, they attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. So this was the Oxford group. This was a Christian spiritual group that just helps people with different problems. So he was attracted by their poise. Poise is a self-confidence, but not based on pride. It's based on a confidence that God's got my back and God's taking care of me so I can be comfortable in any situation. Um, and that's what these people had. He said they had great freedom from embarrassment they were at ease on all occasions and they appeared healthy, but most of all, they seemed happy. So again, that's a trait we should have in recovery, that people can look at us and not say, oh gosh, I know she's in recovery, but she looks so sad. Like all this work she's doing to help others and stay abstinent, it's dragging her down. She has no time to even wash her hair. No, we're supposed to exude happiness, joy, and freedom. That is a promise. That's a fruit of doing this program. And I want to go back to poise, um, the self-confidence based on knowing that God's got my back. If we have that, if we, we really believe it, we can face anything. You know, I just moved to a new state. Today was my first day meeting with a new medical practitioner. And, you know, I was thinking I have this condition. It's 10 syllables long. It basically means my body doesn't make antibodies. And if I get a certain type of infection, it can be really deadly. Um, and I have to tell you, I don't worry about it at all because I believe God's got my back. If this happens, they'll either figure out what to do with me in the hospital or God's got another plan for me. It's like when we have this belief that God has our back, we don't get scared very easily. And when we do, because we're human, we don't stay scared very long. So Dr. Bob, he's in this group. He's no dummy. He looks at himself. He sees he's ill at ease. His health was at the breaking point and he's thoroughly miserable. And he said, I sensed they had something I didn't have from which I might profit. And I learned it was something of a spiritual nature, which didn't, didn't appeal to me very much. So he was honest, right? It's like, okay, they're happy, healthy, and poised. And it's a result of some spiritual work, but I don't like it. But he said, eh, I thought it could do no harm. So I gave the matter time and study for two and a half years, but still got drunk every night. And isn't that a lot of us, I mean, I remember reading program literature while I was binging. It was like if I had cancer and I'm reading a manual on chemo, but I'm not injecting the chemo they're telling me to do, I'm not gonna get better. And that was Dr. Bob reading, but not getting better. And really in a beautiful testimony to his wife, he says on page 178, how my wife kept her faith and courage during all those times, I'll never know, but she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. His wife had courage and she had faith. And the word courage reminds me of like the first time I learned that word, probably a lot of us, right? The Wizard of Oz and the Cowardly Lion. So what did the lion do? He continued on his journey to Oz 
even though he had fear. And he had friends who propped him up when things got difficult. So in recovery, when we need courage, when we need to keep going, even though it's scary and hard, hopefully we have friends to like prop us up and walk arm in arm with us as the book says, shoulder to shoulder, you know, down that yellow brick road. Dr. Bob also said his wife's faith kept him alive. Well, how come? How could her faith keep him alive? Because faith actually does something in the spiritual world. Faith is the currency there. It leads us to communicate with God. And maybe it was her faith, her whispered prayers that led God to say, my next search and rescue mission will be for her husband. Or maybe it was because at that point, Dr. Bob said at one of the Oxford group meetings held at the home of Henrietta Cyberlink, remember that name? Um, he said at Henrietta's house, guys, I have this confession to make. I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, they might have been chuckling behind their hands a little bit like, yeah, Bob, tell us something we don't know. They all knew he was an alcoholic. And Henrietta, who was on God's search and rescue team for Bob, at that point, she just said, we'll pray for you. And there they were praying for him. So their faith, their prayers, coupled with Dr. Bob's wife's faith, and her prayers. And what was the result? Well, let's flip back a couple of pages to see what the result of all that prayer and all that faith was. So back in the chapter of Vision for You on page 155, we find our other co-founder, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson didn't live anywhere near Bob, but he just happened to be out in Bob's neck of the woods on a business trip. He was there newly sober. His business deal had gone down the tubes. He was in bad health, he had no money, and he was physically weak. Sounds like a disaster, right? But Bill had all, had a spiritual experience because he had surrendered his life to God. That's all it takes, surrendering to God. And he said, I better do something. So he went to a payphone, and there was a list of half a dozen churches, and he said, I need to find a priest, a minister, a rabbi, someone who's going to help me, someone who's going to give me a drunk who I can try to help because that's what I need to do. And he called all six. And not until the very last one did he get a pastor who said, I'll get you in touch with this woman who has a spiritual group at her house. Ah, maybe she can help. So Bill Wilson calls Henrietta. When she answers the phone, he says, my name is Bill. I'm in town for business. I'm newly sober. Do you know a drunk I can help? And she simply said, we've been expecting you. That line always makes gets me. We've been expecting you. She knew that her prayers were going to work. So it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe God answered our prayers. It's like, yeah, we prayed for help for Bob. I didn't know how it would come or when it would come but I knew it would come because God isn't limited by how we think things will happen. She might've thought he was going to get sober in the Oxford group. He didn't, but she said, we've been expecting you. So what happened then? She invited Bill over and she called Dr. Bob's wife and said, can you bring him over here tomorrow to talk to this guy, Bill? And Dr. Bob said to his wife, fine, but I'm not going for more than 15 minutes. 
Um, so I actually did a little research in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, about that first meeting, how Bill prepped for that meeting. He didn't just go in. He prepped, he prayed, he talked to Dr. Silkworth, the author of The Doctor's Opinion, before he left Akron, because he said he was trying to help people and they weren't getting better. Um, so they were talking strategy. And Dr. Bob talked to him about how to relate to an alcoholic. You share your story, meet him on common ground. And I find that fascinating. Basically, Dr. Silkworth said the first thing that Bill had to do was to help the other guy see that he was powerless. And maybe that's why for me, just for me, going to a therapist never worked, going the religious route never worked. These things helped me, but they didn't help me stop binging. Because what Dr. Silkworth told him is that basically you need to take a first step. First, admit you're powerless. Your life is a total train wreck. Ego deflation at great depths. And that's what has to be done. So Bill went in there. Instead of getting all spiritual and telling him how great the Oxford group was, he shared stories about how he used to drink and how he would say, I'm just going to have one, but couldn't help it and would keep drinking until he pretty much lost everything. So he's telling Bob this, and I'm sure Dr. Bob was saying, yeah, I drink like that too. I did that too. So the guy who said he was only going to stay there 15 minutes ended up staying over six hours. So that's another thing about Bill. He was willing to put in the time, and Dr. Bob was willing, but not willing enough yet. On page 155, it says, a spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Why, he argued, should he foolishly admit his problem to his patients? He would do anything, he said, but that. And as we'll see, his but that would get him into trouble. So Bill stayed with Bob for three weeks and kept working with him. Bob stopped drinking and then went um, for about three weeks, he stopped drinking. And then he went to a medical conference and he got drunk again. And I find it fascinating what happened next. Dr. Bob gets drunk at his conference, drunk on the way home and wakes up drunk at a friend's house, not even knowing how he got there. The friend calls his wife who calls Bill. And what did Bill do? Bill didn't say, I spent three weeks of my life working with you so that you would get better. How dare you do this to me? Or I told you, you shouldn't go away with so little time under your belt. I'm on the next train back to New York. Goodbye and good luck. No, he didn't do that. Here's what Dr. Bob said. He said that Bill came and got me home and to bed. He took him home. He put him to bed. Think about putting a drunk alcoholic to bed. Bob probably smelled. Bill probably took the shoes off his dirty feet and covered him with a blanket and Bill stayed with him. And there's an interesting line on page 180. It says that he, he stayed with him and then he gave him one glass of beer the next day. And so I'm thinking, why on earth would he give him one glass of beer the next day? And the reason is Dr. Bob was scheduled to do a surgery that only he could do. This is just a couple days after he got back from this trip gone bad. And he was shaking so badly that Bill gave him one glass of beer to steady his hand so he could perform the surgery. So this is not to say that, you know, if someone goes out, we're supposed to give them like one Milky Way or one Twinkie the next day. No, 
This was for a very specific person for a very specific reason. So his hand wouldn't shake. And he did the surgery, which by the way, was successful. And by the way, Bob never drank again because right after that surgery, he went around the town and he told all the people he didn't want to tell that he was an alcoholic. He did that. So his I'll do anything but that turned into I'll do anything, period. And we know that's critical, right? Page 58 tells us if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So Bob became willing and he never drank again. And he spends the last couple of pages in his story talking about his recovery and giving us many pearls of wisdom. He says, okay, you may be asking, what did that man, Bill, do or say that was different from what others had said or done? Because, you know, we can assume he's read the Bible, he's read spiritual literature, he's been around spiritual people, he was a doctor. First, he says, Bill gave him correct information. And I would couple that with love. Bob wasn't a project to Bill. He loved him. That's love. If you're going to take a drunk man home, take his shoes off and put him to bed and stay with him. So love and good information. And Dr. Bob says of far more importance was the fact that he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked, who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. And that goes along with what it says in the forward to the third edition, that recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. But why? Like, why don't they say that recovery begins when I like take the first step? I think it's because when one addict talks to another, something happens. There's more than a conveying of information. There's a transmission. Bill Wilson was transmitting something to Dr. Bob. I looked up the definition of transmission. It says something like light, heat, electricity, or another energy passes through a medium, kind of like telephones transmitting sound waves. And I think that in God's search and rescue for Dr. Bob, God used Bill Wilson to transmit God's very own love and concern for Bob. So if we go back to page 164, the end of the chapter of Vision for You, it talks about this kind of transmission. It says, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. So see to it that your relationship with God is right and great thing, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. See to it that your relationship with God is right. That's the condition. Well, what does that mean? Our relationship with God is right. Remember when Bill Wilson first got sober and was in the hospital, he said, the thought came to me that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn could help others. But before Bill could be fit for this kind of work, he had to see to it that his own relationship with God was right. How did he do it? How do we all do it? Page 164 tells us abandon yourself to God as you understand him. That means basically give God a blank check with our lives. Admit your faults to him. Okay, that's a little hard. And admit them to your fellows. Okay, that's a lot harder sometimes, right? Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find. And when we do that, we're in great shape. 
Bill did that. He made those six calls. He didn't just make two and say, I give up. Um, he made them all. Then he went over to this strange woman, Henrietta's house. And even before he goes, he calls Dr. Silkworth to brainstorm on the best way to help this guy who he's never met. And then he spends over six hours with him, stays in that town to help this guy for three weeks. And then when he finally thinks he's helped someone, Dr. Bob breaks his heart by coming home drunk. But he kept at it with Dr. Bob. And thank God, because if he hadn't, we wouldn't be here today. Every now and then, someone will say something bad about Bill Wilson, like, oh, he did this thing or that thing that wasn't right. And what I say is, first, I have no idea what Bill did, and it's none of my business. But more important, look at what Bill did for me, for you, for us, for Dr. Bob. That's what I think of when I think of Bill Wilson. So page 180, Dr. Bob says, it's the most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. He says he has regained his health, his self-respect, and his home life is ideal. Then he says he spends a great deal of time passing this on to others who want and need it badly. And he says he does it for four reasons. A sense of duty, it's a pleasure, because in doing so, he's paying the debt to the person who carried the message to him and as an insurance policy against drinking again. First, it's a duty. Because the truth is, I mean, I'll admit it, sometimes I don't wanna pick up the phone. I don't wanna take the time. God hasn't 100% finished me yet, and I'm still selfish sometimes. So some days, yeah, I just do it out of duty. But often, and more often as time passes, it's for the second reason, it is a pleasure. The more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. And that's amazing. Um, then his third reason, because in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. That's gratitude in action. And I have to tell you, when I hear my sponsees sponsoring someone or speaking at a meeting of how God has removed their food obsession, there is like nothing that's more joyful. It's just great. And last, he says, every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. It is our best insurance policy. Chapter seven, first line says, nothing will so much ensure immunity against alcoholism or for us compulsive eating as intensive work with other alcoholics or compulsive eaters, intensive work. Dr. Bob continues by saying, he used to get upset when he saw his friends drink, but realized he couldn't. So he schooled himself to believe that though he once had the same privilege, he abused it so frightfully it was withdrawn. So we can do that. We can say to ourselves, self, I used to have that privilege to be able to eat whatever, do whatever, but I abuse that privilege and now I don't. Just like if you get too many car accidents, your privilege to have a driver's license will be withdrawn. So then Dr. Bob starts talking some tough love here. He says, if you think you're an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. It's interesting he calls atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism forms of pride. Because that's really me thinking I can do it on my own. And I love how he doesn't say, if you are an atheist, agnostic, a skeptic, he says, if you think you're an atheist, agnostic, or skeptic, 
meaning you may think you are, but you're really not. I guess it would be me, like me thinking I have no lungs inside of myself. I could think it, right? This is America. I can believe whatever I want. So I could say, I'm a lung atheist. I don't believe I have lungs. But of course, when I think about my lack of lungs, doesn't matter. And our book tells us on page 55, my favorite line in the book, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So between those two lungs that God gave me, God planted the fundamental idea of himself. And the big book says this fundamental idea of God inside of us can be obscured, but it's still there. You know, we can talk about this for hours. Um, Melissa and I have lots of podcasts on we agnostics and talking about finding God, because that's really the crux of the matter, right? Um, but for now, just suffice it to say, Dr. Bob says, you may think you're an agnostic, but you're not. And it's almost like an invitation. Don't have so much pride that you block yourself off from the sunlight of the spirit. And Dr. Bob continues with his tough love. If you think you're strong enough to do it your own way, that's your affair. Like, we're not going to try to convince you that you really need this. He says, but if you really want to quit for good and all, not just to look good for your high school reunion so that boy who dumped you when you were 17 feels bad, if you want to quit for good and all and feel you need help, he says, we know we have an answer for you. And then here's his conditional promise. It never fails, but here's the condition we have to meet. It never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. I put a lot of zeal into getting my binge foods. I stole food. I stole money for food. I walked the streets of New York City at 2 a.m. looking for an open bodega to spend my rent money. Today, I have to put that kind of zeal into recovery. If we do this work, it tells us we are promised, promised that it will never fail. And on the last line of the chapter, he tells us why because our heavenly father will never let us down. God will never let us down. I believe we are all here because God has launched a search and rescue mission for every single one of us. And he's given us a manual on how to do it and people to help us so that we can recover and then join him on his search and rescue missions for others, the way that Bill joined and rescued Bob and then the two of them together rescued Bill D and then they together on and on and on. What a glorious sense of purpose for all of us and what a glorious God to give us all that. And with that, I pass, thank you.